Awesome. Okay, so really excited to get started on this new series. We're going to be studying for the next few weeks uh, the Hebrew names of God. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to that. Obviously as well, you know, if we're a family church, we don't mind a bit of noise in this place. Amen. So we just want you to know that. Don't worry about the noise. We're all good. We're going to focus in today on one name in particular. So I think this whole series of understanding the Hebrew names of God, it's not just an academic exercise. It's not something that uh, we do just to have more head knowledge, right? This understanding of the Hebrew names of God, each, each name is a promise. Each name is a covenant between God and his people. So this, I think, is going to richly bless each of you, not just in your head knowledge, but in your heart. It's going to bless you in your walk and understanding more your Father in heaven. So let's pray and let's begin. Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you that this hearing of your word today is every bit as much worship as when we sing songs together. The ministry of your word is absolutely essential in our discipleship journey. And so, Lord God, we pray as we prepare to hear your word and as we prepare to understand things about you and your nature and who you are, that you would prepare our hearts like good soil, that you would till out any of the rocks in there, that you would make it possible that good seed would be planted and that that seed would grow and bring forth a mighty harvest in each life, Lord God, fruitfulness abounding in this church. So, Lord God, we pray, touch us afresh with your word today. Amen. So we are studying the names of God, the names of God, plural. He has many names in Scripture. I don't know if you've ever known that. As I sat down just there with Garth, he turned to me and he said, I'm very excited to do this series on the names of God. Are we going to do all 180? (laughs) I think there might even be more than that. But I said, no, we can't do that, but we will focusing on a few selective, really important names of God. So what's in a name, church? What's in a name? What's it all about? Why are we studying this? William Shakespeare had a very famous line about names in his play, Romeo and Juliet. And the line goes like this, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. The general idea being that a person's name does very little to define a person themselves. And that does seem to kind of run true, doesn't it, today? For example, my name is actually Scottish, Graham. It has a number of different meanings. One of those meanings is gravel homestead. Gravel homestead, how romantic, Um, or man from the grey valley, wow, (laughs) as far as I'm aware, I was raised on Newbridge Street in Whitmarines, I don't think it was a gravel homestead, but there we go, Um, (laughs) another very famous quote concerning names is one that did the rounds on Facebook a few years back, and it's, it's by an unknown source, but it says this, quote, Stop giving kids Bible names without Bible lessons. Yesterday, I was robbed by Abraham. (laughs) So what's in a name? 
Well, in ancient times, in Bible times, it was different. Names were truly thought to be an expression of somebody's very nature, of who they were. So to know someone's name was to know something about them. Adam, for example, the first man created his name, Adam, comes from the Hebrew Adama, which means earth. So Adam means literally son of the earth. Isn't that incredible? Moses, that's a name that's taken from the Hebrew word masha, which means to draw out, just as Moses was drawn out from the river, from the reeds by the daughter of Pharaoh. David, or um, sorry, David in the Hebrew, it means beloved, beloved. And we know that God said David was very special to him, don't we? We know God said about David that he was a man after his own heart. And of course, the name Jesus. We covered this a few months back. The name Jesus, or Yehoshua in Hebrew, means the Lord is salvation. So the Jews knew what was being said by the name Yehoshua, by Jesus. They knew prophetically what that name meant. I wonder what your name means. I wonder whether you've ever considered the meaning of your name. It's an interesting thought. But especially in the Bible, a name always means something. A name always tells us about the nature and the character and even the attributes of an individual. So, brothers and sisters, when we study the names of God in Scripture, and there are many, something of the very nature and the character of God is being revealed every time one of his names appears to us in Scripture. You know that pagans in the ancient world, those who worshipped the Greek pantheon of gods or the Roman pantheons of gods, they believed that by knowing the names of their gods... They were given a certain amount of power over those gods to call upon them and get them to do their bidding. And in some sense, when somebody tells you their name, it is a way of relating to them, isn't it? Of becoming more familiar with them. For example, I remember after I'd left school, I went to school down the road at St. Peter's, and I remember uh, after I'd left, I'd moved away from Wolverhampton, and I came back. And I went into my local pub on a Friday evening. And as I walked in, I saw a familiar face. It was an old teacher from my school. So I walked in and I said, oh, hello, sir. And he said, don't call me, sir. He said, call me Hugh. And so I was able to call him by his first name. So knowing someone's name is one thing. But them giving you permission to call them by that name is something else, isn't it? It's about familiarity. It's what friends do. You know, if somebody speaks to me and they say, hello, pastor, if I know them, I'll say, call me Graham. You call me Graham. There's something in being able to call somebody by their first name, isn't there, that speaks of familiarity. It speaks of friendship. So when God reveals his name to you, it's not only revealing something about his nature, or his character, but it's revealing something about how he deals with you. It reveals something about his relationship to his people. Now, 
all the way through so far, I've been using human references, human instances, stories about people to try and show you what all of this means. But before we get too far into metaphors, we've got to understand something. We're not dealing with a human when we're dealing with God. The God of the Bible in his divinity is not like you or I. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my way, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so it shouldn't surprise you that God has many, many names in Scripture. In fact, as I said earlier, too many to cover in one series. So we are going to have to be selective. Why does God have so many names? Because he is God. Because he's God. Why is it that he made sure to reveal himself to us through many names? Because he loves us. He condescends to us when he uses our languages to describe himself to us. You know that God transcends languages? There's no way that we could possibly ever fully comprehend the glory of God using human languages. So even in him using the Hebrew language to give us names is him condescending in love. It's him coming towards us. It's him being kind and saying, listen, I want, to, I want you to understand me. Even in all your broken languages, I want you to understand something of me. So some of these names speak more to us of who God is in his nature, in his being. And some of the names speak more to us of the things that God does. I love this verse in Judges 13, verse 18, where the angel of the Lord says to Gideon, I believe, he says, why do you ask my name? seeing it is wonderful. Wow. God's names are all wonderful. I hope you see that today. So just the mere fact that God has communicated his names to us, it tells us that God is always relational. He's always looking for ways to interact with his children. He's not aloof. He's not uncaring. He wants to be known. He wants to be understood. And he also chose to reveal himself to his chosen people at first through the Hebrew language. He didn't choose a different language. He didn't use Akkadian. He used Hebrew. And so that's why it's proper that we study the various Hebrew names of God found in the Old Testament. There's a reason why God chose Hebrew and Greek, by and large, to, tr to write the Bible. Both languages are incredibly versatile. And both languages, I believe, can convey lots more meaning to us than English could. So that's why we're going to be studying them in the Hebrew. Now, some of these names, like Elohim or Adonai, are also used in Scripture to refer to other beings, like false gods. There are false gods in the Bible that are called Elohim. There are angels that are called Elohim. I don't know if you realize that in the Bible. And even human rulers can be referred to as Adonai, because it means Lord, just like in the New Testament, Kyrios, or Kyrios, depending on how you pronounce it, means Lord when we refer to Jesus. But it can equally mean Lord, a human ruler, or a governor. But there is one divine name, one divine name that God gives his people in the Old Testament that he and he alone is to be referred to by. 
And this name is considered so holy that the Jews will not even read it aloud. Did you know that? This name we're going to talk about today, the Jews will not even say aloud. In fact, it's the one word that I'm not allowed to read, out, to read aloud in my Hebrew lessons. My Hebrew teacher won't let me. Instead, I have to say a different word. I have to say Adonai, which means Lord. I'm not allowed to even say this name out loud in a Hebrew lesson. Now, this tradition of saying Adonai instead of that word on there, that goes way, way back. That goes to like the 3rd century B.C., we know that because even in the Greek version of the Old Testament, they do something peculiar with this word. What they would do is to remind rabbis not to say the divine name out loud. What they would do is they would take the vowels of the word Adonai, because in Hebrew there are no vowels. Did you know that? There's only consonants in the Hebrew language. You have to add the vowels later so as to know how to pronounce something. So what these scribes did was that they didn't want anyone to say this name out loud. So what they did was they took the vowels of the word Adonai and they put it underneath this word you can see on the screen. So as the person reading it would go, ah, Adonai. I don't say that word, I say Adonai. And it's through this technique and this method that we've ended up with a word that, for Lord which actually isn't even in the Bible. The word Jehovah. Jehovah isn't the name for God. I don't know if you realize that. Jehovah is the word Yahweh, but with the vowels from Adonai underneath it. And so it was German theologians that came up with Jehovah. In fact, there's not even a letter J in the Hebrew alphabet. Did you know that? There's only a Yod for Y, but there's no J. Okay? So... Whatever God's name is and how it was pronounced, or this word, it would not have been Jehovah. It wouldn't have been pronounced like that. It's not wrong to use the word Jehovah, you understand me? But it's not the word that's in the Bible, okay? Christian theologians haven't been afraid, typically, to use this name on the screen for God. And there's no reason that we should be afraid to speak this name. It's one of God's covenant names, and we'll see why in a moment, why we ought to not be afraid to use it. Most people pronounce this four-letter Hebrew word, which is spelt yod he vav as Yahweh. Yahweh. That's the name written on that screen there, Yahweh. And this name for God is used over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. That's way more than any other name for God is used. And actually, your English Bible tells you every time this name's used. Did you know that? You'll get a capitalized Lord. Every time you see the word Lord in block capitals, that is where that Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, is being used. So that's a lot of times, isn't it? When we read the Old Testament, it's chock full of capitalized lords. That's because the name Yahweh is being used. So let's look, shall we, at the point at which this name was famously revealed to Moses. Because God reveals his names. I don't know if you realize that. We don't make up names for God. He reveals his names to us. So we turn to Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Then Moses said to God, 
If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. That I am who I am, that is a fuller explanation of what Yahweh means. In the Hebrew, it's Ehye Asher Ehye, which literally means I will be that I will be, or I am that I am, dependent on how you see it. And that's what that name means. So what's God saying through this name? Well, brothers and sisters, I want you to see two wonderful things today that God is saying through this name. Firstly, it's super important that we see what is said at the end of this passage. God says that this name here, Yahweh, is his name forever. It's his name forever. It's the name by which he wants to be remembered throughout all time. And so I have no fear to use this word because God has wanted to be remembered by it. It is holy. We ought not to profane it. That's in the Ten Commandments, isn't it? We do not profane this name. We do not take this name in vain. But it is a powerful and holy and beautiful name. God explains to Moses, as I said, that this name Yahweh means I am who I am. Or some other translators think it's in the future tense. I will be who I will be. But either way, it comes from the Hebrew word Hayah which means to be. It speaks of existence. God's eternal being is in view here. This name tells us that God is not I was. He's not I might be or I can be, but I am. I am right now. I was. I will be all at the same time. Yahweh is the one who is. His existence as God isn't contingent upon anything else. That means it doesn't rely on any, anything else. He didn't need anyone or anything to bring him into existence. He exists by his own power of being. And he's always existed this way. He always will exist this way. Mountains will rise and fall, seas will grow and shrink, and stars will be birthed and burn out as red giants, but God will remain the same, every bit as evanescent, every bit as powerful as he ever has been. And brothers and sisters, I want you to see something really important today. It's because God exists that anything at all exists. Did you catch that? It's because God exists that anything at all exists. His existence is the source of everything in the cosmos. And yet here, in this part of the world, the existence of God is treated in culture as a matter of fantasy. 
when we're in town and we share the gospel. We were out this week, and as I was sharing the gospel, I mentioned the truth that Jesus isn't a fictional character. He's not make-believe. He's not a figment of our imagination. We're talking about a real historical figure. You see, the world doesn't mind that you believe the gospel. The world minds when you say the gospel is true. And immediately a big man came over and he went, you're lying. Jesus didn't exist. There's no evidence for Jesus. And I just said, brother, you're wrong. You're wrong. There's no evidence. What? Why didn't the Egyptians talk about him? And I said, the Egyptians existed thousands of years before Christ. He said, there's no evidence. I said, Tacitus, Josephus, Pliny. And at this point, he was already walking away, shouting, there's no evidence. To me, one of the greatest testaments to the truth of Romans chapter 1 which speaks about mankind's willful suppression of the truth. One of the greatest testaments to that being true is the popularity of atheism in well-educated circles. To me, that's a real testament to the proof and the truth of what the Bible says about mankind. Because atheism is one of the most foolish and self-refuting worldviews out there. But it's believed by some of the world's cleverest and most well-educated men and women. Let me show you how it's foolish and self-refuting. It believes, firstly, that something came from nothing. It believes something came from no thing. Rabbit out of the hat. Secondly, it believes that life came from non-life. Matter came from non-matter. It believes that mindless processes... Random mutation, natural selection, somehow produced intelligent, self-aware beings. Atheism believes that purposeless events somehow gave rise to objectively purposeful beings like you and me. Atheism believes that amoral, purely physical events gave rise to objective standards and right and wrong. Why did that atheist have a, such a problem with me sharing the gospel? Because he believes it is wrong. Let me read a quote to you from Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous atheists in all the world, a biology lecturer, in fact, a very good biology lecturer, a good writer, but tragically wrong in this respect. Richard Dawkins said this, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's an atheist speaking there. So where are we getting good and evil from? Do you see where I'm getting at? Despite these glaring contradictions in atheism, Atheism mocks at the very existence of God, claiming there's no evidence. Despite being a conscious, self-aware being that believes in objective right and wrong, an objective purpose, they overlook all of that evidence for God and say, there's no evidence. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. R.C. Sproul, the late theologian, he said that one of the greatest truths of all science, of all philosophy, of all the learning of man, 
is this statement in Latin, ex nihilo nihil fit, which means out of nothing, nothing comes. Did you catch that? Out of nothing, nothing comes, which means this, you can't get something from nothing because nothing or no thing can't create, can it? Because it's no thing. It has no will or intention or mind. It can't explode. Nothing can't explode. A vacuum isn't nothing. It's something. You getting where I'm coming from? Nothing can't do anything because it's nothing. Now, an atheist once asked R.C. Sproul for proof of God's existence. I don't know if I've had enough guts to do this, but R.C. Sproul took off his shoe and he shook it at the man and he said, here's your proof. Here's your proof. This shoe. And he said, because if anything at all exists now, then there never could have been a time when there was nothing. If there was ever a time when there was nothing, then the only thing that could ever be would be nothing. So there always had to be something. Something that had the very power of being in itself. Or nothing would be the only thing that could ever exist now. You'll have to listen to that again. C.S. Lewis, the great writer of the Narnia books and also one of the greatest thinkers of the last century, he put it this way, and I'll share this quote with you because it's wonderful. He says this, quote, Supposing there was no intelligence behind the universe, no creative mind, in that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. It is merely that when atoms inside my skull happen for physical or chemical reasons to arrange themselves in a certain way, it gives me as a byproduct the sensation that I call thought. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? It's like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that the way it splashes itself will give you a map of London. But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism. And therefore, I have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I cannot believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God, end quote. So what does the name Yahweh tell us about God? It tells us that he is God. There is no other being like him. All other gods have no life within themselves. They're not real beings, but are simply inventions of mankind. The name Yahweh tells us that God is the reason for everything that does exist. Without him, nothing could exist. But there's more, brothers and sisters. We mustn't stop there. There's more in this name. Because this name doesn't just speak about God's existence or about his nature, but it tells us about his faithfulness. Watch this. Let's read the passage again. Moses comes to God. He's worried. He's worried that the people of Israel won't believe him. They won't trust him, that God has really sent him. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. 
God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God revealed his name to Moses in order to convince the people of Israel to trust in him. He's not just saying, I am who I am. But he's saying, I am who I am to you, just the same as I am who I am to Abraham. I am who I am to Isaac. I am who I am to Jacob. God is saying, I'm just the same now as I was then. And I will be just as faithful to you as I was to your forefathers. Just as I provided that ram in place of Isaac. So I can provide for you. Just as I've been faithful in all my promise to Abraham, so I will be faithful to you in all my promises to you here in 2022. This name is a promise to you, to all of us here as God's people, that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the God who Christ proclaimed, the God who Paul preached is also your God. He is your I am. He is your Yahweh. He is your Ehye, Asher, Etye. Just as he worked constantly to save, heal, and deliver his people throughout all the scriptures, just as he loved them fiercely throughout all the ages, despite all their sinfulness and rebellion, he was always faithful to them. And he is working today in the same relentless fashion to love you, to deliver you, to save you from every trial, from every snare. He's loved you and he will continue to love you. He'll love you for all eternity because he can't deny himself. He is who he is and he cannot change. Herman Bavink the German theologian said, the name Yahweh is the description and guarantee of the fact that God is and remains the God of his people, unchanging in his grace and faithfulness. That's a good word, isn't it? God is faithful. That's what this name says. The God of grace is faithful to deliver, faithful to save, faithful in his love for all eternity. He never changes. Why don't you stand with me? You know, I sense that there are many of us in here that find that message hard to believe. It comes at us like words from a poem, but we haven't really been able to receive it to ourselves. We're able to think, yeah, that might be true of these characters in the Bible. Maybe even true of some of my friends, but it can't be true of me. God can't really love me. But I want you to know today through this word that to every single person who comes to Christ in faith, God is faithful to you. And he set his love upon you just as we shared last week. He knows every single one of his own by name. He knows the hairs on your head. And he won't suffer one of his sheep to be lost. 
Not one. John 6, Jesus said, All who come to me, I shall not turn away one. And none shall be plucked from my hand. Not one. And so I wonder today whether God might want to impress on your heart again the truth of his love. That you might encounter afresh that love, that faithfulness to always be by your side, to deliver you from whatever comes against you in this life, to deliver your faith through whatever trial you're walking in right now. And that he hasn't forgotten you and he will not forget you. So Holy Spirit, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that you impress it supernaturally on our hearts. And we pray, Lord God, that as a result of this name that you've given to us, we might be strengthened to know that we are beloved. That we are your children. And that you will be faithful to us just as you are faithful to Moses, to Jacob, to Abraham. We thank you for this truth. Amen. Amen.